2: The beam peeling off the
3: walls. Good night. Welcome to The Catherine Zoc Show. I'm Catherine Zoc, your social worker with a microphone. You're listening to VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. We have two guests coming up in this hour Peter Baska. He's author of It's None of My Business, What You Think. And Peter says, whether you are a young adult considering your career path, a middle-ager in the throes of crisis, which I think I am, or approaching retirement, this book is for you. My second guest is going to be Dr. Susan Newman, author of The Case for the Only Child, Your Essential Guide. So think about it. What do you think the ideal family size is? But first, Peter Basta, it's none of my business what you think. Welcome to the show. Nice to have you on this morning, Peter. Yeah, I'm
4: sorry to hear you're in the throes of crisis.
3: Well, I'm always in crisis. <laughs> I think middle age is a crisis. I mean, I don't think you can go through middle age and not go through some kind of a crisis, do you? <laughs> uh,
4: well, I'm going to I'm going to suggest a couple things for you right off the bat. That, okay. That number one, um, let's re, let's relabel. Uh, you're uh, the uh, I've written two books. One is called "The Point of Power," and the second one is actually—it's none of my business what you think of me. And the 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 key here, both books are really on the same topic, but the the issue, the underlying issue that uh, my research has shown, and uh, is that your thoughts reflect themselves and manifest themselves in your reality. And uh, just to give you a little bit of background, I did a ten-year literary search um, where I reviewed. Uh, dozens of, of theological texts and I diluted and distilled these texts to truths that they all agreed to and then I went over to quantum physics and I studied the research of uh, Nobel laureates Stephen Hawking, Carl Jung, Albert Einstein, Max Planck and I looked at what they were saying about the universe and who they thought God was and how the universe worked and how we interacted with it and I developed those common denominators so it's basically a research-oriented book it's, it, These are these are old ideas and uh, when you when you tell me that you're in the throes of Christ, you're in, in your middle age and you're in the throes of Christ, well, that's what you believe. your thoughts reflect your perception of things. and so what i 'm going to suggest is this is, and this is a chapter in in one of the books in, in the first book actually it, it, and the second book talks all about it. the second book is kind of an application of the first book that that when you label something as contrast, a middle age is is an amazing time for some people and and certainly. Certainly, it does bring some changes, but the key is how do you look at it? How do I look at it? How do we perceive these changes in these moments where gosh it's, it's not the same something's different I don't have maybe the energy my you know some of my friends are in different situations I've lost some of my friends um, if you if you label these situations as contrast then what you begin to do is you remove the resistance if you say I'm in crisis well crisis means you're stuck it means you're in crisis if you I uh, evaluate a situation and you identify it as contrast well this feels different I don't like this I want to create a different desire I'm in a different position I'm in a different place in my life this doesn't feel right any longer you might have been doing the same thing have the same habits for for 30 years and now is the time for a change there's nothing wrong with that and that's not a crisis what that is is a contrasting situation that will allow you to realign your behaviors in a direction of a new desire
5: Exactly. so what you're
3: saying Peter you're saying Peter what you need to do and really this is on the cover of your book the second book it's none of my business what you think of me I want to act I want to put the accent on the right words but you say if you want to change your life then you have to change the way you're looking at your life it's and then then you will be able to make those changes
4: absolutely our, our thoughts manifest themselves in our reality and this is not just you know I don't know you know what someone's religious beliefs are or their political beliefs Beliefs, or, or whether they've studied quantum physics, but every, all of these folks can't be wrong. I mean, the, the, it, it, I think that uh, theology and religion ha- has has been um, inundated with human misinterpretation and contradiction, and it's lost its credibility. Quantum physics talks about the universe and how it works. On a, on a level that most of us can't understand. I mean, it, most of, I, I had to read it three or four times to get to get through it and and, and distill it so that uh, I could I could speak in layman's terms. So there's a gap, and my, my both of these books build a bridge and say, Hey, listen, all these people weren't wrong. I mean, some of these texts are, go go back to uh, 2,500 years ago. Lao Tzu wrote the Tao Te Ching. And the truth. But,
3: uh, now I'm getting lost. So I don't know that much. Uh, I don't know anything about quantum physics mm-hmm. ex- except Stephen Hawking's. I know his name and I've seen right. him speak. But uh so I want to relate this in, in uh, more into layman's terms related to your book specifically, you know, because you talk you know when you in the book it's it's um something that I can relate to, actually. That we,
4: <laughs> Brilliant. That's yeah. the idea. I was just giving you a little bit of background. Sorry if I went too far. <laughs> yeah, I
3: think maybe more than we need to know, because, okay. I mean, your book is very clear, and it's very user-friendly, and you do talk about how we are influenced by our past and what people think of us and tell us what we should be thinking and what we should be doing, whether it's religion, family, teachers, employees, and we have to step back from that, as I understand it from the book, mm-hmm. and take... Responsibility for our own choices and the way we feel about things, and, and kind of get rid of some of that conditioning that doesn't work for us.
4: Right. You, no, you're right, right on the right track. I mean, I was just—I was simply trying to go back a little bit because, uh, you know, the, the, the essence or the foundation of, of both of the books is science and its theology and its and its and, it's, and, and then, of course, life experience. But mostly, uh, it, it, it's it's diluted um, uh, ideas that have been around for a long time and, it, you know, whether you want to choose um, uh, the concept of consciousness and that's, that is that—that is your thoughts coming to any ind- individual con- uh, uh, transaction or if you want to talk about the, the idea of ego. The, the second book um, talks a little bit about you know, the, the concept of ego and, and I start the book out by saying the most expensive thing that I have in my possession is my ego and if you want to start there, that's a good starting point in terms of just getting down to brass tacks yeah
3: let's start.
4: <laughs> well i the essentially um in in, in chapter three i talk about hey, all of us have two doors that we can walk through one door is is, is a, a, a door that is uh, essentially a fear based door and the other door is a love door it's a, it's a door where we come to that transaction with love in our heart and one comes from spirit and comes from heart and comes with trust and the other one is ego-based it's fear it's what's what's what do they want for me and the 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 essence of this this chapter and, and i believe this that when you come to a transaction any any kind of whether it's romantic or business um or otherwise you come to the transaction from one of those two perspectives this book is about casting away your ego and saying listen i'm not gonna spend a lot of time trying to impress you with who i am i'm going to come to this transaction trusting you i'm gonna come to this transaction with integrity and with character and and i'm going to uh... look for ways that i can um, improve the quality of this person's life or, or give, provide the best service, come from a perspective of a host mentality and be as hospitable in that transaction as I possibly can. Now, now I believe that's the essence. Give
3: us an example, because I always like this because, I mean, I mean, you've done a lot of research for this book, obviously, but what about personally, in your personal life where you've had to make these kinds of decisions or choices and, and, and it's worked for you?
4: Well, I can give you an example. I, I was on a board of directors of a bank. I would just gotten out of college, and I'd started my company, and I ended, ended up doing business with a small bank. I ended up on the board, and they—I was the youngest guy on the board—and they thought, "Well, we're just going to we're going to mess with Peter, and we're going to put him on a board of directors of a, a local symphony." Well, I thought, okay, well, whatever I can do to help. And so I ended up on this, on this board, and it was, it was basically a, a bunch of gray-haired, wealthy people who were sitting on the board, had been sitting on it for a half a dozen years. And in the process, I'd literally run the symphony into the ground. It was, it was on the verge of bankruptcy, and there were people wanting to close it. There was, uh, the board itself was uh, looking at each other, and they were fighting in the ranks, and they couldn't get anything done. And I sat on the board for six months and didn't say anything because I had no experience in the end a couple of the gals came to to my office and asked me to, if I would consider uh, being president and I said of course not I didn't want to be the captain of the Titanic so <laughs> I kind of familiar, I didn't I was certainly not in a position where I could afford a lawsuit or uh contribute uh, being negligent in the way that I ran it so I said absolutely not and then that that night I thought well gosh this is a great way of giving back to the community and maybe this is Maybe this is really a, an opportunity rather than something I need to be concerned about turning down. And so the next day I called him back to my office, and we had tea, <laughs> and we <laughs> and we and I said, "Okay, I'll I'll do this. Except here's my problem. I, I I'm I'm kind of an entrepreneur. I'm a direct, hard nosed German, you know, business person. And and in order for you for us to turn the situation around, you know, we're gonna we're gonna have to make a lot of people angry." Um, there's a lot of people that want us to close our doors. They don't feel we can make it. There's a lot of people that have different opinions. So we've got to we've got to come up with a plan. And, and in order to do that, we need a couple of things. So I asked for a few things, and they agreed to them. And then we went ahead, and and uh, I, we did make a lot of people angry. I got hate mail, and it was kind of funny because here was this you know we're trying to help a symphony that was uh, essentially the only way for a lot of these kids in the neighborhoods, in, in the farm communities around this small town to, to essentially have exposure to classical music. Some of these, these uh, musicians were, had been in the, in the symphony for you know, 20 years, and so they relied on this as not only employment, but just a, as an outlet. And so I thought there was a lot to lose here. So, we went through the, the the paces of of determining what the problem was from a business business perspective and so he turned it around and I began selling out concerts and, and i 'm very proud of that, but the the concept was how can i how can I come into a situation and i didn 't do it how could i say i didn 't do it because i 'm a nice guy I, I turned it down, but in the end, what I learned from that experience is, boy, you can really uh, buy by coming with a mentality of hospitality and, and, and uh, taking charge and taking the reins and taking responsibility and really um, approaching a situation with how can I help and how can I turn it around, the, the benefits are, are amazing. It's one. Of, it's a uh, situation that I'm very proud of having been involved with.
3: So, Peter, in terms of the theory or in terms of like what are you write, what you're what you writing about in the book, what are you saying? You could have come into this with the, the fear, I'm going to get sued, I don't want to do this. <laughs> well, I, I
4: did. <laughs> I did.
3: Me, I, all those kinds of things. Yeah. So, and if I did that, I would have said, no, I'm not taking this, I'm just not going to take this job. But because you turned it around in terms of the way you perceived the job to be done in the spirit of, of what honesty, kindness. Well, the, the
4: point the point is that we have a choice, and and I guess I'm, I'm just pointing out that I, I was certainly not a, a, a philanthropist. I was not a wealthy man. I was not somebody that could necessarily even afford the time. But I so I had to make a choice, and my choice could have been from a perspective of fear, and I and I'm I'm sorry to admit that it was. Initially, I was like, "Well, this is just a dumb idea. These guys are going down, and, and why would I want to be the captain of that?" Yeah. Camp? <laughs> and so, I mean, I'm, I, you know, I embarrassingly say that this, this is, the, you know, that I, that was my initial response. But the reality was. That um, I changed it, and I said, "Well, this, I came to it from from a loving perspective. There's a lot to be lost here. What can I do to help?" And boy, I'll tell you what—that it, it made all the difference in the world, both from the standpoint of how I felt about it and how I feel about it, but also in my ability to execute.
3: Well, we're not all going to be asked to be sit on a board, even though I mean, you, you sort of even when you're telling the story, you kind of do play at a symphony in a small town. Although this is the opportunity for children to have music in their lives. Um, We have these day-to-day situations that we have to to make decisions all the time, as you say, no matter whether we're in middle age or we're children or whatever it is. So how does this fit into our daily decision, your kind of paradigm here? How does that fit into our daily decision-making, our daily choices?
4: Well, the the, the key is uh, to... make a choice, to decide to begin to dilute or uh, reduce the density of our egos. Most, how, how much time do you spend or do we spend uh-huh. trying to, to get other people to like us? I mean, if you go back to that, that's what the... the... I
3: used to spend more... I'm going to say something about aging because I think I used to, and this is probably not me, but I used to spend a lot more time. time. I used to care a lot more, but as time goes on, and I feel I have less time left, I care less about what other people think. I want to do the right thing, and if they don't like it, well, I can't. That's their... Problem,
4: not mine. Well, you know, you just brought the, you brought us right back to the book because in the book I talk about my grandmother's uh, essentially her, her formula to success in life. That, that we have a sixteen thirty six sixty six program, and if we could if we could begin to look at life through the eyes of a sixty six year old, when you're sixteen, boy, your life would be much more successful. It'd be more joy filled. Um, it would be more e- efficient. You'd make decisions and you'd get places a lot quicker. And, and what you what you just said was uh, exactly that. Gosh, I don't spend that much time anymore trying to impress other people.
3: Yeah, well, I think your grandmother, she was. She was absolutely right. So how are we going to get 16-year-olds to think like 66-year-olds? Well, you got
4: to gotta read, you gotta read my book. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, the, the, the book really, it uses that as kind of a framework where, we're, what, what are we doing when we're 16? And I boy, I remember, you know, uh, spending a lot of time trying to impress, you know, my you know my girlfriend or my mother or my employers or my professors and then later on my clients and uh, I mean certainly that worked within a, within the context it got me some uh, maybe some gratification but that was my ego and if you re- if you cleaned out all that and said well I'm going to take all that energy and focus it on on other things like for instance if you were in a love love relationship if you were married or if you were in a romantic relationship and you focused all the effort that you spent spinning your wheels trying to impress everybody else on that relationship the chances of failure would be would be ne- negligible and the same thing goes for um, you know, your, your, employ- your vocational life or your academic life, and and I think the, the, what we're talking about is um, coming from perspective of integrity and character and, and from spirit. I like to refer to it as where, where you're really getting a sense of who you are and you're responding to life based on who you really are versus... So why
3: don't we do this? Because you're talking about we get this this kind of attitude or this kind of, like, you know, our ego and all of this. We get it from our family of origin, from our parents um, and our yes. parents and, and our culture. And so if you can start out, you know, kind of with kids or with, even with, with, you know, with toddlers and, you know, you are, as a parent, encouraging that kind of ego development, uh, how do we change that? Because, I mean, that would be then would be a better way than you know wait till you're sixty six and say who I wish I did. <laughs> I wish I was knew this when I was sixteen
4: yeah well, I mean I think that's where the book is is a very powerful book it really goes to, it goes to the to the crux of things and and where you know where are we getting our information from and I call it the, the, the domestication process when we're being domesticated um if, if you know i, I the, the best example I can think of is when you buy a you know a puppy you know, and you bring your puppy home and you begin to domesticate it and you teach the puppy not to pee on the carpet and and you teach the puppy to do certain things and, and that 's exactly what happens to us and certainly a lot of that has to do with just uh, fitting into society, but all of all of that domestication is based on someone else, someone else 's perspective of the world, someone else 's idea of what we should be doing. And there's a real fine line between, you know, someone controlling and directing based on what, gosh, I know a better way for you. Well, the unfortunate part of that is we we really don't know a better way for someone else. We don't know who they are at the core. We can tell them, gosh, this worked for me. And if you do it, if you repeat what I did, well, then you're going to get what I, what I did. And I, I, I just don't know that that's... I think that's a real bad way of gaining wisdom.
3: But doesn't there have to be some kind of a balance? Because there is the fact that your parents or the older generation is going to teach you in some way how to be uh, adapt to this culture, and you want to take some of that stuff. But at some point you have to be able to balance that with, wait a minute, you talk about domestication, and, you know, we don't want to be... Completely domesticated, and we want to have freedom of choice, and there has to be some freedom of choice. So there is a balance between the two.
4: No, no question about it. I mean, you you make a great point, and I, I think that that's that's what our, the book is about. It's essentially looking at each of these individual perspectives, and I and and, and realizing that a lot of these contracts that we have with ourselves uh, are very expensive, and they're 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 not only shackling us. The little girl on the cover is shackled to these big iron balls that are that are essentially uh, representative of these contracts that we have and these contracts could be you know I'm, I'm a little girl and I'm really pretty and I get pretty much whatever I want by being pretty and so that so when I get to college I you know I'm going to wink here and wink there and I'm going to get what I want based on that versus you know studying and, and applying my skills and 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 maybe becoming the person that that uh, I was meant to be, and uh, uh, the same thing is true in, in in you know I'm sure you can think of a, a dozen different ways where that applies, and uh, and that's where the the book goes in and says look at those contracts. Is that what you really want? If that's what you really want, well, then you're right on the money. But how how many of the, how many of those contracts do you have that that you know you signed back when you were you know eight or nine years old that you're still carrying today
3: yeah and and they don 't fit and no. they, yeah there isn't a fit it doesn't fit well, you talk specifically, you have a chapter on choosing a career, I think that's a good example um, Give us some examples in the book that uh, that re- reflect on what you do and how you're affected by the career you choose or the career you think you're choosing, but you 're not because you've been domesticated right. to make yeah, that well, choice. Right.
4: Yeah. Very simply, I mean, the, a lot of us are, to, are. You know, if you if you grow up in a in a situation where there's there's money troubles at home, and money is a big issue, well, then someone might begin to tell you that you know you don't want to do what we did. You want you want to choose a career where you know money is in an abundance, and there's certainly on the surface there's nothing wrong with that. However, that that does begin to navigate. Uh, you know nav- help navigate you through the, the your vocational choices and either in a positive direction or a negative direction and uh, you know uh, the, if you if you look at Western culture today um, we're, 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 the wisdom that we're that 's being spread about is really not wisdom. I mean we have children between the ages of thirteen and sixteen that the a m a is coming out with studies and saying these kids will not live as long as we 're living. For the first time in a long time, lifestands are going back. and That's because of the diet, diabetes, and and obesity. Um, When I started uh, uh, doing uh, sort of the the legwork for for the first book, I took a a boat up the East Coast on a six-month tour, basically, where I interviewed people going up the coast. I just asked them three simple questions, and it was, how did you determine your belief system with regard to politics? second one was, with regard to religion, the third was with regard to nutrition, and I stood outside a McDonald's to try to get, ask some people about nutrition and figure out well, why are where, where, how are they deciding to walk in and supersize their their meal, and uh, and yet they were the, you know the couple I'm going to talk about was they were obese, and uh, they also had three kids, and I filmed I filmed these these interviews and I asked them the same questions, and and it was it was amazing these people really loved their kids, it wasn't like they were a, Angry, mean-spirited couple. They were the lovely outing on a Sunday afternoon. And I said, "Well, what made you decide to come here?" And they gave me a bunch of answers. And but the reality was, their children were clearly twenty to thirty pounds obese, and they were in their early teens. So, what
3: were the answers when you asked them why did you choose this particular fast food? Well, not necessarily well, that particular fast. food I, I, any fast food place. Yeah, you,
4: you've heard you've heard them all before, and it's basically they're the wrong answers. They're they it's cheaper. It's and, and and the fact is, if you go to a whole Foods and you buy a, you know, a, a lettuce, a head of lettuce, and a tomato, and and, a, and some olive oil, and some, uh, and you can create a lovely salad for a lot less than you can a super sized Big Mac meal, and, and uh, so the, the the answers to the questions there, did not coincide with any kind of logic, and, and how can, how can there be any logic, and so uh, th- that kind of brought me to the uh, the second book where I kind of uh, point a little closer to to, you know, how we can begin to live our lives and, and where are we to be looking for answers. And, so uh, what do
3: these, you gave a great example, and I, I mean, that's a huge literally problem that we have in the United States. I'm always talking about it on my show. Overweight, obesity, why do we make those choices? But you're saying this couple, for instance, and that's a good example. They have these two or three kids, right, who are 30 pounds overweight. What do these kids do? They're under the age, I'm assuming, of 16. Uh, What do they do in, in terms of how you would want them to make their choices and not allow themselves to be domesticated so that they're making horrible food choices because, well, it's too expensive to eat, salad. It
4: or whatever. I mean, you know. Well, no. I mean, I think that our society is wrought with this, is which is the what was the impetus behind writing the two books. Where are we getting my information? And, and I mean, I know that I was going back a little further than you wanted me to go, but a lot of the you know, the, the I, I was in, in Beijing, China, and I interviewed a, 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 a Tibetan monk. I spent the day listening to their rituals and what they did, and, and where were they getting their, what they were doing was they were learning a process by which they could gain wisdom. In other words, they were certainly going to school, and they were being socialized, but then there's another thing going on, and that's how do, how do we become wise, and that's different than knowing how to, you know, dress, or how to, uh, you know, build a house or, or, or learn a skill. It's basically how do we how do we allow ourselves to come through? How do we go back into spirit? I mean another another example um, is marriage in this country. I think it's a very interesting a tradition that is failing horribly on so many levels. I, I don't see it any different than than the, the issue of diabetes and, and obesity because what's happening is the, 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 the traditional marriage which was you know functional on, one, on some levels at, at one point. Now is is failing on many levels, and the uh, the fallout are the children uh, where, where, the, where, the, where the parents are using the children against each other there 's all kinds of uh, common problems that are coming out of that, and I talk, there's a chapter on marriage that basically talks about how do you make a decision about marriage, and we, you know, I discussed the concept of... Well,
3: don't you think, and we've only got one minute left, and I yeah. hate to interrupt, but time to <laughs> no, wind it up. I, I just want to say, I think, and, and I've, I've been thinking about this, and obviously since reading your book as well, but, you know, we are starting to, and maybe you're alluding to this, we kind of are using 20th century solutions for 21st century problems, whether it's marriage, war, food, all of these things, and it's not working, and, right. and we need to do something about it. No, you hit the nail on the head. Unfortunately. <laughs>
4: <laughs> it's very true. Well, I, I think the, the, my first book, The Point of Power, discusses Essentially, how this all works, how the universe works, and, and essentially how you can begin to alter the way that you perceive things, change your thinking, and still your mind, and get to the bottom of how to uh, uh, begin to manifest the sort of things that you want. And, and we talk about why it doesn't work, why it does work. In book two, it's none of, your, none of my business what you think of me. It, it's basically, basically an application. And it says here, when you get into a, into a life situation, you have two choices. You can either come come to it with what can I get out of this? What do they want for me? Or how can I how can I how can I properly serve this situation? How can I come and add value? How can I bring to this situation um, uh, some 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 value so that uh, I'm helping? And and how can I bring more hospitality? And right. those are Wait,
3: the two. And programs. I want to you know Peter Baska. Uh, it's none of my business what you think of me, and you can get this at online, Amazon.com, bookstores everywhere. Pleasure talking to you today. Thanks so much for joining me.
4: My pleasure. Thanks again.
3: Yeah. We're going uh, uh, to be talking to uh, Dr. Susan Newman, author of The Case for the Only Child, Your Essential Guide. Uh, we'll be back in a minute. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone. You're listening to VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio.
2: Talk, talk, talk. That's all we do is talk. If you'd like to talk, call us toll-free right now at 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. That's it. That's it. VoiceAmerica.com.
5: You've got your family and you need to keep talking and you need to keep understanding and look into yourself, who you are, what kind of person you want to be.
2: What would be the one most simple advice you would give to a healing agoraphobic? I
1: don't know if it's a panic attack or whatever it is.
2: It's happening very frequently. I don't have to be in any place where there's no, air. it can happen even on the road. People get over things. You can't look back. You've got to look
5: forward and learn something from your past.
0: Join Dr. Raymond Hamden in the psychologist's chair every Tuesday at 9 a.m. U.S. Pacific Time on Voice America Variety.
1: Thank you. If you hear a dog barking or an angel singing, then you know that you're listening to Waking Up in America. Heard every Wednesday at 3 Pacific Time, Valerie Kirkgaard and all of her friends will bring you powerful and humorous discussions that raise thoughts and give you insight on how to live your life to its fullest potential. Adventure is always a must on Waking Up in America with Valerie Kirkgaard. Every Wednesday at 3 Pacific.
2: Ask the experts. Call toll-free right now. 1-866-472-5787. And ask our all-star team to answer your questions. That's 1-866-472-5787. Thank you for calling voiceamerica.com.
1: You're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. If you'd like to join our conversation this morning, call now. The toll-free number is 866 472 That number again is eight six six four seven two five seven eight eight. 472
3: We're back. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone. You're listening to The Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. My next guest is Dr. Susan Newman, Ph.D. and author of The Case for the Only Child, Your Essential Guide. Um, You know, we're going to be talking about the only child, but what do you think is the ideal family size? You may be surprised. Uh, Dr. Newman's book, The Case for the Only Child, actually spells out... Um, why there's been a trend, a shift to having smaller and one-child families. Welcome to the show. Nice to have you on this morning, Dr. Newman. Good to be here. Thank you. Well, it's interesting because most people, and I still think, and maybe it's not based in reality, but, you know, an only child, what, you know, is not a good thing to have because they're going to be either spoiled or there's going to be too much focus on the child and they're going to be under too much pressure because they're the only one. Uh, there's a whole lot of myth, I guess, uh, surrounding only children. So, um, maybe we can start with that. Uh, There absolutely
5: are. I mean, people are so worried and made to feel guilty if they have one child. But over the years, I mean, these myths and stereotypes started in the late 1890s. And like other stereotypes, they've just clung and held on. But what's really happened, and study after study, including three that I've done, have shown that only children are no more spoiled, no more lonely. Um, it's true they are under a bit more pressure from their parents, but parents who are pretty savvy these days, and hopefully they're lowering their expectations. Um, so these myths just don't stick. I mean, when you say only children are spoiled, I mean, that's a prime example Um you know, we, we're living in this culture of yes-parenting, and many, many children in our society are spoiled because their parents give in to every request for the latest gadget and gizmo um, or trip or whatever it is. So it isn't just only children who are spoiled. You know, One of the other myths about only children is that they're clingy and dependent, Well, it turns out when you look at only children, they're in fact more independent than children with siblings because they don't have anyone to hide behind and because they value their friendships and they know that their friends are their sibling substitutes and therefore they're going to learn very quickly how to get along with them, how to share, and how to stand up for themselves. Which, you know, that's a claim that people make, that only children need brothers and sisters to teach them how to fight and how to stand up for themselves.
3: All right, so given that, Dr. Newman, that it is, those are myths, it's not, they're not necessarily true, they're not spoiled, they are more independent, I guess, than we had thought, but there is this trend and in the United States to, uh, for, uh, you know, not having 2.5 children or whatever it was in the 50s and 60s, <laughs> and now it's... You know, one child. Uh, what are the reasons for that? Because, you know, I mean, obviously, women are I, I are working. Uh, I know that there are many reasons for it, but that families only want one child. Well,
5: one of the the biggest uh, impetuses behind this is that women are starting their families later. They're staying in school longer, getting more education and going out in the workforce wanting to be established before they start their family so they're older. And as a result, uh, as we all know, the older you are, the more likely you are to hit an infertility wall. Or if you have one child, um, you may have secondary infertility. That is the ability to have one child and then problems having a second So, you know, that's behind the trend, plus people are marrying later. And um, women working is also a big issue. You know, as of the 2010 census, um, 77% of mothers were working. So, you know, it's very difficult to manage a house with a you know, a large number of children and work
3: full-time. Yeah, I mean, here are some of the statistics that you have. 41% of newborns are born to women over 35. So these are considered older moms, older mothers. I'm just going to give out, just throw out some of these. Um, Over 70% of women with children work. You know, we've been talking about that. And how about simply cost? I mean, we have to be practical today. It costs approximately two hundred and eighty six thousand dollars, not including college and I repeat that, not including college to raise a child today so hey, from a practical standpoint, we should all be having one child um, from a practical standpoint
5: that that is so true and And that figure is for you know people earning uh, less than a hundred thousand dollars when you earn more, then, you know, parents who earn more spend more, and there have been estimates from uh, the government that says that, you know, if you're earning it in the high income brackets, you can spend up to 450000 and in some cases, the real high income brackets, a million dollars raising one child. So cost for a lot of people is a factor, and part of the cost that people don't, I don't think everybody thinks about this, when you have a second and third child, you often need to move to larger quarters. And that that housing is one of the biggest chunks of the cost factor.
3: I think another thing, Dr. Newman, is that um, one of the things is if you have two and three or even four children that you are, repeating the developmental stages with each one of these children. And if you are particularly a woman, I have to say, because I think they still take the primary responsibility for the care of the children, is that they, um, they can't go out and attend to their careers, professions, in, in a way, in the same way as if they have four children or if they have one. I mean, once you're, if you have one child, once you're finished with the baby stage or with the new, you're done, you're finished,
5: and That's you can right. go on to next. Yeah, I mean, there is, in fact, what they call the motherhood penalty in terms of, excuse me, your salary, and it's estimated at 5% per child over your career, and I was talking about this at a conference, and I noticed a lady in the audience kind of snickering, and I thought, well, she thinks my numbers way off um and obviously she did but in a different direction she said oh it's so much more than that it's like 75% this penalty for mothers <laughs> but um in some careers it, it is it's 5% kind of a generalized number but if you look in the field of law it's 10 to 15% per child and it also with children affects your starting salary so um mothers tend to be paid a, a smaller starting salary than women without children and men. So you know it it there's no question that the more children you have um affecting household income.
3: But here's an example. I'm going to take it from another side. Here's a challenge. Maybe
5: uh, that may be
3: true in the beginning, but say more in the middle or end of life. If you have more children, you have more children to take care of you or to bear the responsibility for taking care of you emotionally, not just financially, but also emotionally and 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 uh, maybe physically as well. And so, it may, if you're going to, you know, those are some of the advantages of not having an only child. Maybe of having two or three children
5: well that that's the you know the generalized argument, not but, true, but in fact, when we're ha- of childbearing age and having our children, we fantasize that that's exactly what happened. My son will come over and help, and my daughter will come over <laughs> and help and what actually happens in many, many families, if that works, it's wonderful. What actually happens is there's one child who bears the brunt of making medical decisions for parents, for visiting, for uh, picking up the so-called slack in parental care. Uh, And you have the issue of believing that your children will get along. Well, in many families, you just hear horror stories about the siblings not getting along when it comes to taking care of their parents in some way.
3: Um, so they end up really arguing depends. and fighting, and it becomes divisive rather than something that brings the family together. More right. often than not, I mean, I don't know what the exact statistic is. You're t- but
5: yeah, I don't. There is no exact statistic. But if you weigh and you look at what goes on and you listen to story after story, I, I'm sure you've heard people say, oh, my sister isn't lifting a finger to help my parents, or my brother lives across the country and he's never here when there's a crisis. So you know, if you prepare for the, for the situation in, you know down the road, an only child can cope with it. And only children lean on their friends. You know, many, I mentioned sibling substitutes, many only children have very close bonds with their friends, and uh, they will be there for them. And the sibling who doesn't get any help from her brothers and sisters is also often leaning on a friend.
3: And I think another source of, of emotional uh, um somebody to lean on or to, to be helpful is cousins. I, th- I find that only children or friends that I have who are only children are very close to first cousins or second cousins. So it, it's family and it's someone their own age, but it's, you know, it's not necess- it's obviously it's not a sibling, but it is, it is a cousin. It is a relation.
5: That, that's right, that you, uh, parents of one child want to... Um... Encourage cousin relationships with aunts, uh, uncles, and cousins, be they first cousins or third cousins, uh, as well as socializing their children early to build these friendships. Um, so, children who are socialized early and remain in the same area um, will bond with these friends and, you know, they'll be like sisters without the blood tie.
3: So you're a a psychologist, and and as a social psychologist, do you do therapy as well?
5: Uh, No, I don't. I do um, research, and I was teaching for a number of years at Rutgers University.
3: Uh, Because I I was going to ask you whether or not... um, uh, you know, psychologists or psychiatrists, social workers find that they have more children, more only children in their practices. I mean, I don't know if you can. Oh, I do. I do know
5: the answer to that. Good, <laughs> actually, because I spoke with as part of the research um, for the case for the only child. I spoke with a number of um, therapists about this, and they actually say that they have more younger patients who come in with sibling issues than they do only children. Um, when they do get an only child, it's usually because the parents have more time to focus on that child, so they you know, pick up on things that may be wrong, but they um, don't really see only children as having more problems than children with siblings.
3: Yeah, and I wonder also how that translates into some of the problems that, of course, that are, I don't want to say, I guess, inherent, but that are problems today, you know, drugs and alcoholism and those kinds of things, where only children perhaps have less of those uh, issues or the same. Uh, you know, I don't know. Uh,
5: you know only children, you know, th- this goes back, I have to go back to the stereotypes. Yes. Only children are... It, you know, within the general population, almost identical to children with siblings on all issues, um, the only place you see a distinct difference is that only children um, on test scores show higher achievement motivation and intelligence. And that makes sense yeah. because they are one-on-one with their parents.
3: Yeah, that I w- that you would expect, yeah, because you have two people working, you know, you have two. It's a two-to-one ratio, which is very different than if you have two, three, or four children. And you, as I understand it, have four stepchildren, mother of one son. Mother,
5: right? I am so objective on this topic because <laughs> not only do I have four stepchildren, um, and only child from my second marriage. But I also have a sibling with whom I have a marvelous relationship. So, um, I, you know, I feel like the cat with nine lives.
3: Yeah. But
5: um, I did. I I did approach this. I started the the research because people kept saying you can't have just one child. You have to have another, and I, that got me thinking. Well, what is wrong with an
3: only child? Well, I have a. Uh, I mean, I I have. I have two siblings and three sons. So, and, but, my boyfriend partner of 20 years, over 20 years, is an only child. So, this is always a topic of discussion. Oh yeah, yeah. And, and, <laughs> and so I was interested in talking to you. I think one of the issues that that he has, and I, I don't think he would mind me saying it, the whole concept of 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 sharing is different for an only child. I mean, when he comes you know, initially coming into my ho- household with three boys, and and you know, everyone, it's sort of like every man for himself. You have to protect <laughs> yourself. You have to learn. You know, he would put something in the refrigerator. The next day, it's gone. Well. Hey, did you hide it? Did you, you know, it's not going to be there. You have to fend for yourself, those kinds of things.
5: Well, that that really depends on how much early socialization he had as a child and, and, you know, and how often he had sleepovers and how often, you know, children were involved in his life. You know, if he was at other people's houses and watched the sibling interaction and watched the uh, container of ice cream disappear, disappear. (laughs) he would know. (laughs) He would know exactly what to do. But it's not that that having siblings or not having siblings is a better family situation. It's just they're different. One isn't better than
3: the other. So what does this say for, because I think in the beginning of, of our talk, um, we were talking about the fact that people are having less and less children, maybe, you know, one one child, and so uh, for many different reasons, and we've discussed those. But what does that say for the future, for the 21st century? What's the family going to look like, and how is that going to impact on our culture? Well, the,
5: there will be more leaning on friends, families, I, I, I think more and more. Um, people will continue this trend out of because of um, circumstance or by choice, um, and, and friendships will become even more important than they are now, which is pretty important. Um, as far as socially, I mean, if you look at China, they're having problems uh, supporting their older population because of. There, you know, for thirty years plus, there's been an only child mandate in many parts of the country. Uh, I'm not sure that's going to happen here. Um, the concern in a lot of countries is who's going to take care of the older people and who is, go, you know, who's going to do the heavy duty construction work, building our roads and bridges, for example. Um, I don't think that will be an issue in the United States because not everyone is going to choose to have one child. Um, But there's going to be much more acceptance of the single child, and the, um, the myths are falling away about the only child. They're, they're not as prevalent as they were. However, they're still there big time. I spoke to somebody the other day who said, I don't believe in only children. <laughs> so, you know, not everybody's going to get on this bandwagon, but a lot of people will.
3: And I think another uh, new social dynamic that's beginning to occur, and, and one of my sons, he and I were discussing this the other day, was that a lot of younger people, women are choosing, especially women, particularly women, are choosing to have one child, not be married, they want a child, they just want, they want to be a mother, but they don't want to be married and they don't necessarily have somebody they want to be with, so that they choose or they opt to have just one one child, one mother. That's right. That
5: number is skyrocketing. It's it's 41% of newborns are born to single mothers, and a large portion of those mothers are career established women in their mid to late 30s and into their 40s who have given up on finding Mr. Right, and their maternal drive has kicked in, and they have one child, but handling Children by yourself is even more difficult than doing it with a partner, so for they opt for one child um you know it's a financial burden they have to work so one and also adoption rules in many countries, there is an age cutoff for adoption, so you know all those factors add into well, one child's right for me.
3: Well, do we have any, uh, inter- I don't know, this adoption, the statutes are different in different states. Are there any rules and regulations regarding that uh, age at which you can adopt a child or um, how many children one can adopt? Or, or...
5: Well, if you're adopting um, within the country, you know, adopting foster care children, um, the the age limits are a little more lenient than they are if you're adopting, let's say, From China, um, where they not only have an age limitation, uh, and I'm not quite sure what it is now because it changes regularly, they also have a body weight index mass restriction. So every who does it, China, uh, China, uh, yeah. If you want to adopt a child from China, they uh, look at your body mass index. Can I believe? I know. You know uh, that's it's astounding. <laughs> a, they so you have. I mean, so some you have to be under a certain um, body mass.
3: So they want somebody who's healthy, or at least healthy, one criteria yeah. for health. But what about what about? Um, do both? Let's say it's a couple who's adopting a child. Do they both have to have a certain BMI, body mass index? Um, I believe
5: so. I would have to check that for you to be positive,
3: but they're quite um strict
5: about that and some countries just close down their door completely to adoption. You know, you can adopt you know you've been the US has been adopting from there for years and then all of a sudden you can't adopt at all. And that though so, the reason is? Um well they, what they're trying We're too fat to do, or too no, no no. Uh <laughs> they they worry about uh trafficking in babies you know and that that becomes a big issue in some countries where they're you know buying and selling children rather than um you know finding homes for children because they need them so um you know and the parents need money so it it you know it's it the international adoption front is a very tangled mess and um you know, it's, it's almost like in, in terms of the um, difficulty with all the screenings um, and the paperwork, it, it can take nine months to two years to get a baby uh, from a foreign country. And it's quite difficult.
3: Yeah I'd like to though get back to the criteria that the Chinese have for adoption the BMI thing. Uh what do you think maybe we should have that too as well.
5: <laughs> well given the obesity in our country and its um predominance of late it maybe it's a good idea because um you know we're not doing these you know children who adopted any favor by feeding them McDonald's all the time, yeah, and by yep
3: yeah, that's a I, as soon as I finished the interview with you, I think that's really that's a that's a topic that I had not that's a point i never heard of that before um boy, it really says a lot about the way the rest of the world sees us doesn't it i mean it's, it's a, yeah, it's kind of
5: scary. But they've had that. That isn't a new rule or a new restriction. They've had that body mass index uh, criteria for a long time. So I don't think it's our recent discovery that children and parents in America are getting heavier and heavier. Uh, There's not a correlation there.
3: All right. Well we only have a couple minutes left, so what we want to uh, what we want to emphasize I guess that uh it's okay to be it's well it's okay to be an only child obviously, but uh it
5: uh it's okay to have one. It's okay and to have
3: one as well and it depends and not on. Feel your and, it, don't, and feel not be,
5: don't feel guilty about it and don't be pressured by your friends. Even your child will say when he's very young, I want a sibling. Um, they, children usually get over that about age six, about eight or nine. They realize how good they have it.
3: Well, and usually, I mean, this was my experience, and then we're going to have to say goodbye, but it was when I, each child that I had, the other one was so jealous and wanted to send them back. Well, All right, We don't really need him. Yeah, well, siblings often aren't what they're cracked up to be. <laughs> exactly. You think you want a, a, a sibling, but uh, not when it actually happens. It's been a pleasure talking to you today. Social psychologist Dr. Susan Newman, and um, her, her new book is The Case for the Only Child. uh, It's been a real pleasure talking with you today. Same here. Thank you. Thank you. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone, and you have been listening to The Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Hope you had a good morning, uh, have a good week, and uh, we'll see you next Wednesday.
1: We hope you've enjoyed today's episode of The Catherine Zox Show. You can listen live every Thursday morning at 7 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America channel. Want to know more about Catherine? Visit her website at www.catherinezox.com. Be sure to join us next week for more interviews and great conversations with Catherine Zox.